Welcome to the podcast series of the Winning Peace Conference, which will take place on the 11th and 12th October 2018 at the German Federal Foreign Office in Berlin. You can find information about the registration program and invited speakers on our website win-peace-conference.berlin. I am Cedric Yersin and today's guest is Angeluce Morina and we will be talking about her work as a peace builder in the Balkan region. Welcome, Angelusha. Thank you. And I uh, would like to begin this podcast um, by asking you, who are you and what are you doing? What is your work at the Berghof Foundation? Thank you. And thank you for coming here to our uh, premises. Um, as you say, my name is Angelusha Morina. I currently work for Berghof Foundation. I have been with the foundation since 2016, early 2016 I joined. Um, uh, yeah, and um, I'm uh, focused now on the conflict transformation research program. That's where I'm uh, currently working. Um, I started as part of mediation and dialogue program, and then I worked for both programs for a bit, and now I'm working for a conflict transformation research program. Um, prior to that, I have um, been part of what I like to call as think tank world. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm one of the think tankers. Um, I worked a lot in uh, uh, Kosovo uh, for many years. I ran a think tank there that focused on uh, policy-oriented uh, research, and we focused on socio-economic and socio-political issues. Um, I also um, uh, co-founded and chaired Pristina Council on Foreign Relations for a few years. Um, uh, before that, I worked for... Um, as a consultant for the unity group, it was called. This was the high-level uh, negotiating uh, group uh, that was leading um, the negotiations between Kosovo and Serbia from 2005 to 2007. Um, yeah, before that, I studied um, a Greek and Roman archaeology at University College London, and then diplomatic studies and international relations at Oxford. And then just uh, recently, a few years ago, I did um, uh, public administration, executive master's at Hertie School of Governance here in Berlin. So this is in a nutshell. <laughs> you Long story short. <laughs> <laughs> and the Berghof Foundation, which is based in Berlin, is a German foundation? Yes, yes. I could, I could say a couple of words about uh, the foundation. So, um, Berkhoff Foundation is an independent, non-governmental and non-for-profit organization that supports efforts to prevent political and social violence and to achieve sustainable peace through conflict transformation. The foundation was established by Professor George Zundel in 1971. Um, uh, to this day, uh, members of Zundel family have a, a very important role as shareholders and trustees, and they remain dedicated to the organization's long-term development. Yes, we are based in Berlin, but we also have uh, offices in the south of Germany, in Tübingen. Um, and um, depending on um, the needs of the project, we also have kind of sub-offices in other countries. For example, uh, right now we have an office in Lebanon and uh, Sana uh, in Yemen, among other places. And you are working mostly, as you said, for the Conflict Transformation Programme. Yeah. So, so maybe just to uh, give a, a bit of a picture of what we actually do as an organization, and then I can maybe focus a little bit on, on uh, exactly the, the work of the programme that I am involved. 
Um, so our, our vision is um, a world in which uh, people will maintain peaceful relations and overcome violence as, mean, as means of political and social change. So we consider conflict to be an integral part um, and often necessary part of political and social life. But we believe that violence in conflict is not inevitable. Um, so we are convinced that protracted violence, which is what we mostly deal with, uh, protracted violence conflicts can be transformed in su into sustainable collaboration when spaces for conflict transformation allows drivers to change, to prosper and constructively engage with one another. So our mission mainly is creating this space for conflict transformation. And uh, we work a lot with uh, like-minded partners in different countries uh, and in selected regions to enable conflict stakeholders and actors to develop non-violent uh, responses in the face of conflict-related challenges. So um, we do this in many ways. And uh, while we do this, we rely a lot on, on the knowledge, skills and resources available in the areas of conflict research, peace uh, support and peace education. As uh, part of our values, maybe I will just like to um, mention specifically the three of the values that we usually uh, work, um, kind of guide us, uh, and those are inclusivity, ownership, and reflection. With inclusivity, we mean participation by those affected by the conflict, uh, and inclusivity usually uh, ensures that all relevant views and interests are addressed. Uh, and because it requires a willingness to engage, inclusivity contributes to the building of trust between actors and fosters a culture of peace and nonviolence. Ownership is very important in all our work and in all of our projects. We are guided by um, the value of ownership, and this means assuming responsibility. Just as we assume responsibility for our organi organization, conflict stakeholders and actors must also have the resources to assume responsibility for conflict-related challenges. The last value I like to mention as uh, one of the uh, the one of the three important values is the reflection, and this means welcoming opportunities for contemplating and seeing things from new perspectives. Realistic self-assessment lies at the heart of learning and innovation, both for us as an organization and for conflict stakeholders and actors. So we also learn by doing in a way. Um, conflict transformation research program is um, a program that is, has been with, with uh, the organization for uh, quite a long time. And uh, yeah, um, the main focus is, um, of the program is transforming protracted uh, socio-political conflicts and this require a participation of all stakeholders willing and able to bring about behavioral, relational, relational and structural change. Our program builds on the long-standing experience in analyzing and engaging with civil society actors and resistance liberation movements in war-affected or post-war regions. So the central aim is to support the active participation of, of um, conflict stakeholders, both armed and unarmed, in inclusive process of nonviolence resistance and conflict transformation. Main projects, I can just uh, very, maybe very briefly um, uh, tell you about the main projects of the program. Um, so um, one of them is nonviolent resistance and democratic consolidation. This research project aims to address the long-term impact of nonviolent resistance 
On the consolidation of democracy, it seeks to contribute towards a theory of resistance and political change. Another project is um, Salafi Jihadi groups, uh, de-escalation trajectories and dialogue options. The project that I'm involved in is uh, preventing violent extremism in Western Balkans, something that we can maybe talk a little bit more. We will. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there are other projects such as women and uh, post-war community leaders, the nexus of peacemaking and constitution building, which is a project that is handled by two programs, conflict transformation research and mediation and dialogue support program. Tell us a little bit, a little bit more about um, the conflict transformation program. How many of you are there? Um, where are you involved mostly? Yeah, um, our program is um, uh, consists of um, Uh, 10 people so far, I think 10 to 12, depending on uh, the, the student interns and, you know, they, sometimes they stay for three months, sometimes for six. But uh, the number usually revolves around 10 to 12 people. Um, uh, I am part of um, the project that deals mainly with prevention of violent extremism, or as it's known by its abbreviation PVE, in the Western Balkans. And this project combines collaborative research and dialogue initiatives And it's uh, mainly focusing on the countries of uh, Albania, Bosnia, Kosovo and Macedonia. So we work together with four local research partners. And the approach is um, participate, participatory action research. So we co-created co the project and the project activities together with our four partners, four country partners in the Balkans. Before entering into the details of the work that you are doing there, I would like to... Um, have your analysis on the situation in the Balkans today. I would like to, to know, well, you have been working there um, at least since 2007, 2008, I believe, because you were involved in the um, negotiations around the Declaration of Independence of Kosovo in 2008. And I would like to know a little bit more about your experience there um, how was it to be part of this whole negotiation progress? Um, I actually come from there. I'm originally from the region. Um, and I worked on and off for many years. Um, so I also have direct um, experience and was part of, as you say, a couple of uh, very important processes. Um, one of them was um, uh, negotiations for the status settlement run by President Atisari or ex-President Atisari uh, and they went on from 2005 to 2007, uh, sorry. Um, I was part of, um, uh, of a group that worked very closely on what was known as Annex 5 of the status settlement and Annex 5 was mainly dealing with protection of um, Serbian religious and cultural heritage. So there are a lot of uh, Orthodox monasteries in Kosovo and they are um, seen as very important part of spiritual and religious heritage of Serbs, Orthodox Serbs. And uh, yeah, one of the requests or one of the conditions, conditions in the negotiation process was the protection, the long-term sustainable protection of religious heritage in Kosovo. And with my background on um, cultural heritage, um, I was asked to join uh, the group 
as one of the consultants um, for yeah for about two years. We worked together on um, coming up with the final version of Annex 5, which is somehow implemented, but not really to this day in Kosovo, because then Atisari proposal, the status settlement proposal, is also known as Atisari plan, was incorporated into the constitution of Kosovo after Kosovo declared its independence. This was one of the commitments of the Kosovo government when they declared independence to incorporate Atisari plan into the constitution. And so there are a lot of important um, points from the Annex 5 that ended up as part of of constitution, but unfortunately to this day they are not implemented. So the the Serbian religious and cultural heritage is protected to an extent, but um, yeah, many of the provisions are kind of, were kept hanging because there are still um, misunderstandings and disputes and different interpretations of not only constitution, but the ongoing uh, dialogue process between Kosovo and Serbia, because as you know, it's ongoing to this day in different forms. It kind of developed from Atisari uh, plan to another uh, dialogue process facilitated by EU, which is uh, yeah going on to this day. As we speak today, there there is a meeting of the presidents with uh, high representative of of EU Mogherini in Brussels. So they're still talking about the implementation of all the agreements that they have reached in the past few years, but they're not, unfortunately, being implemented properly. Is this a condition for Serbia to recognize the independence of Kosovo? Uh, The conditions were never clearly um, elaborated by any of the Serbian governments to this day. Uh, They still hold uh, Kosovo as an integral part of Serbia territorial integrity. And this is very clearly stated in the constitution that has not changed to this day. In a way, it's one of the conditions that Serbia changes its constitution in order to continue with the European path, as they call it colloquially. So, um, yeah, the negotiation process to become part of uh, EU European Union uh, has all these chapters that every country has to go through and the chapter 35 is I think it's rule uh, rule of law chapter and somehow this language of constitutional changes is incorporated in there. I mean EU has a lot of ambiguity in their documents so it depends also on the interpretation. But yeah, no, they see Kosovo as an integral part of um, territorial integrity. So in, in, the, in the discourse, political discourse, you don't hear clearly what the conditions are coming from, from Serbia, political stance. I think it's mostly that they will not uh, very willingly recognize Kosovo. So yeah, and then um, the, the conditions as such are never listed what, what, they, uh, what they would need to see as conditions fulfilled in order to recognize what they usually claim is that they um, yeah, they see Kosovo as part of Serbia. And this is also the discourse that you hear in different societal levels. Uh, but also you hear um, uh, as a precondition, if I could say, it's the um, uh, extension of the rights of the Serbs in Kosovo. And, and those extensions include um, yeah, a lot of preconditions, if I would say that, 
for example, one of the preconditions um, is to um, have the associate, what is known as the Association of Municipalities of Serbs in Kosovo to have executive rights. This is one of, yeah, one of the main points of contestation, in fact, between Kosovo and Serbia, because Kosovo is not willing to grant executive rights to a certain, certain community or a certain uh, minority group in Kosovo. Um, I understand that a lot of very powerful countries, such as the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, recognized Kosovo as a, a sovereign state. Serbia hasn't, as you said. I would like to know um, more about how the, the Serbian government copes with this international pressure that I assume it is under. Um, can you talk about this? How is it for the Serbian government? Uh, um, it's yeah. Many countries have recognized Kosovo. It's um, around 120, if if not above 120 countries, um, in fact, to this date. But the important point is that five um, European Union member countries have not recognized, which is also very problematic for uh, Kosovo's future, because without these five countries, uh, European Union cannot treat Kosovo as. Yeah, as an independent country, as, as a unit, EU therefore cannot treat Kosovo as an independent country because five countries, five member states do not recognize. And yeah. You are talking about Spain, Greece? Yes, uh, Cyprus, Romania and Slovakia. And uh, yeah, I mean, each of these countries can be analyzed separately why they don't recognize, but it's mainly internal issues and um, I think for Spain is obvious. Uh, so, so f that is um, a kind of um, playing. Um, how shall I put it? Playing, um, playing in a good way for for a Serbian government because um, then they, um, yeah, can build on this that there are so many non-recognizers and they have also started a campaign, a diplomatic campaign for that has been going on for many years to lobby other countries that have not made up their mind not to recognize Kosovo. This was pretty evident, the, the diplomatic lobbying, when in 2015 uh, Kosovo tried to get a membership in uh, UNESCO and there was a, a lot of fierce campaigning going on on both sides. Uh, but unfortunately, I think, the, unfortunately for Kosovo, uh, Serbia managed to uh, play pretty well for, for themselves and the membership was not granted in the end. Uh, so uh, I think they, yeah, I mean, they, of course, it's not, uh, it doesn't come as a good news that all these countries have recognized Kosovo, but I think they have also um, uh, played in the diplomatic um, fora uh, with, with the campaign in, and yeah, all the diplomatic um, advocacy that they have undertaken so far to stop others that have not made up their mind to recognize, not to recognize to this date. The others that have not recognized Kosovo yet, um, it is uh, striking because no member of the so-called BRICS, so Brazil, Russia, India, China and mm. South Africa, has recognized the independence of Kosovo. Um, so we are seeing really two blocks opposing each other, I would call them the uh, developed and the developing countries. 
Um, why is that? Um, it's really interesting. There is a, a dispute there. And can you talk about this? Um, I'm not so sure there is uh, one kind of consolidated answer why these countries have not recognized. It could be for many reasons. It could be the lack of uh, Kosovo's uh, lobbying in these countries or the lack of proper lobbying. And sometimes you would need a mission to be able to lobby properly. And I don't think Kosovo has established uh, liaison offices in these countries. Um, but on the other hand, I think the other side of the coin is that all G7 countries have recognized um, the independence of Kosovo. And this is very often seen as a positive you know, a positive uh, or, or a plus for, for Kosovo's consolidated status in the future. Uh, but I don't think there is one, yeah, one answer for all these countries why they have not recognized. Uh, recognition process is sometimes complicated and sometimes it's, it's really not that complicated. It's just a matter of writing uh, a letter saying that we recognize you without, or not writing the letter, without having any major reasons behind it. And does this situation impact your work in the region? And if yes, how does it impact it? Uh, not really, uh, because what we do is not, we don't usually, although it's part of our work, we don't usually focus on current affairs. Mm -hmm. We need to have an understanding of conflict drivers, and, and sometimes current affairs is one of the conflict drivers. But our main focus is not uh, necessarily current affairs, or this is more, I think this is more of an issue of international lawyers or international law studies or research on uh, international law, public international international law research rather than, you know, the work that, uh, the type of the work that we do transforming or creating space for conflict transformation. I think if we were to ever get involved, it would be probably focusing on the peace uh, processes. And uh, Kosovo-Serbia uh, ongoing dialogue could be, uh, I mean, it is as as it could be seen, and it is a, a peace process, ongoing peace process for that started, let's say, with Rambouillet conference held back in '98. Um, so, from that angle, it yes, it it, it is something that we would um, recognize or we would uh, associate ourselves with, but not the recognitions and the the, the lack of consolidated status that does not. It's, it does not play as an obstacle to the work that we do in the region. And so let's talk about the work that you do in the region, maybe um, in details. Um, <coughs> so you have been working mostly on that topic, I believe, um, which is the violent extremism, as you said, yeah. and your focus is the prevention of the violent extremism. Uh, you said before, um, you would talk uh, of it as a PVE, mm -hmm. the acronym for it. And um, as I have uh, seen, you are focusing uh, not only, but also on the question of uh, volunteers fighters um, who are going to, uh, who are fighting for radical Islamist organizations in uh, Syria and Iraq. Um, I believe that uh, people from Kosovo, um, well, uh, the last report of the Berghoff Foundation, I believe, on that subject was already three years ago, 
well, I, that's the one I found, um, and stating that a little bit more than 200 people have left Kosovo to fight in uh, Syria or Iraq. Is this still correct? Yes, we actually just recently published a dialogue handbook, which is uh, yeah sitting there, and it's uh, trans- it's uh, mainly dealing with transformative approaches to violent extremism. Um, that is, uh, yeah, there there are m- many um, renowned authors who are part of of that series. It's actually a, quite a um, an important. Um, m- issue that has just come out, I think, when was it? Uh, May, yeah, it came out in May. Uh, but that is part of the project that we are doing, but that's not that's not the last publication that we will be seeing as part of this project. Uh, just recently we received uh, country publications that we are in the process of uh, preparing for publications and they will be yeah, available very soon. But um, the project, uh, the approach of the project is, uh, as I mentioned, is participatory research uh, uh, project. And it mainly deals with or looks into why some communities are affected uh, and some other communities are not affected by the phenomena of violent extremism. So we don't focus necessarily on individuals that are inspired to join these violent groups, such as uh, Islamic State. But we focus on uh, looking into the root causes uh, and the drivers of, of the phenomena and in particular looking into what makes the community effective, affected and not affected. So what makes the community resilient, if I could use this uh, buzzword, um, to violent extremism. And yes, we have looked uh, uh, more closely into this phenomena in the countries of Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo and Macedonia. And we do this with uh, four local partners in, in these countries. So in each country we have a partner that we work with. Uh, yeah, so far we have um, come across a lot of interesting findings that, like I say, it will be published very soon. Um, uh, yeah, in, in the form of four country reports, but also we will come up with a comparative report that will come out at the end of uh, this year. Um, and in this comparative report, we're also aiming to hopefully compare the region with other regions, such as Western Europe, because Western Europe has this phenomena uh, present as well, and uh, the region of the Middle East. And we are hoping to yeah, uh, maybe continue with some more work on the topic in the well, future. So maybe you can give us a few uh, a sneak preview of the sure, result of your yes. topic. But first, I would like to understand what you mean by community. How do you define community? What is a community? That's a very good question. So in um, in, in the four um, countries that we have focused uh, with this project, we looked into uh, municipalities as units of analysis, uh, mainly because these municipalities offer the um, state infrastructure, so to speak, and uh, uh, it it's much easier to also look, if, if we want to look into different religious communities, it, it's much easier to focus in a municipality that is in a way structured. Uh, so a community is, for the purposes of this project, is basically a municipality, or municipalities as a unit of analysis, yes. And community, as you said, are impacted in different ways. And do you have a typology of communities mm. based on uh, whether or not they are impacted? 
That's uh, that's an interesting question, a question that we have been uh, grappling with because some communities are showing some signs of uh, vulnerability and some the same community is also showing some signs of resilience. So there is no um, a typical community that is absolutely vulnerable or absolutely resilient. It's, it's, it's an interesting, actually it's an interesting phenomena that is coming out of all these different, different countries um, or country cases that, yeah, there are some elements of vulnerability in all these municipalities or units of analysis that we and the partners have looked into and there are elements of uh, resiliency. It's, PVE in general is very complex topic and I think we have just started in general the, the community of researchers focusing on this topic have just started maybe uh, scratching the if I could say the tip of the iceberg in this in this very complex um, issue that I think it's probably going to be around for a bit so for now yeah this is what we have um, um, kind of realized that a community is not typically or very tightly resilient, or a community is not fully vulnerable to the phenomena. There's there's different nuances uh, that could be present. And how do you do this study of a community? Um, I believe that you're going there and observing, but... Um, the nature of the project is participatory action research, so we do this together with our partners. But since our partners are based there, uh, Uh, permanently. It's them who actually are doing um, the field work, uh, so they are talking directly to the community members, either via um, uh, in-depth uh, research um, interviews or in-depth interviews and focus groups. And uh, yeah, we usually meet regularly with our partners and yeah, we give our uh, support in different ways. But it's it's the local partner that is it's doing the first-hand research, so to speak. Which elements would you describe as, um, that you, which element do you find in communities most impacted by uh, PE, PVE? Uh, yeah, it's, um, well, it's, um, there are different, there's, there's a lot of structural issues. Uh, there are socioeconomic issues. There is, of course, ideology and um, impact of religion so it's it's different it, it's different elements kind of blended together that play out as um, yeah as the drivers of, of the phenomena and you can't pick uh, a simple uh, let's say unemployment it's it's not the only driver so it's unemployment could be one of the drivers in combination with lots of other drivers then Uh, you know, results in this, uh, in, in the phenomena being present. And what kind of elements, are there any elements that, um, well, it's never absolute, but uh, could prevent uh, violent extremism? To that, yes, that's also where we want to focus a little bit more um, through our work is, yeah, um, uh, there are a lot of projects that are uh, top, top to bottom, well, approaches, if I could say, not necessarily projects. So there, let's say there are a lot of um, government documents like 
um, countering uh, violent extremism, let's say, strategy and action plan. But there are very few projects and there are very few initiatives that are bottom-up and are focusing on the communities. And I think this is, this is what is appearing or coming up to be um, a necessary uh, approach to fighting the phenomena to an extent, a community-based approach. Uh, I think uh, working with uh, different um, or the work of different religious leaders with uh, communities or involvement or engagement of different religious leaders with uh, youth, for example, but also a combination, a holistic approach, let's put it like that, a combination of uh, um, work of religious communities with um, local um, administrative structures with um, educational um, personnel and also work with youth. Uh, I think this is something that would bring some positive results in terms of create or um, contributing to um, a resilient community. This is just an example. We're still working on it. So our recommendations will, will probably be, um, yeah, will be much more watertight and much more elaborated. And last question, maybe before concluding the podcast. Um, so violent extremism means uh, also, but not only that people are leaving the country to fight a war in uh, Syria or Iraq, for example. What happens with people who are coming mm. back? Yeah. We have seen um, two years ago um, the Albanian state punishing very harshly, people who came back. And um, um, I would like to have your opinion. What threat do these people actually pose to a community? And what response should the community give to? Yeah, unfortunately, all the countries that we are um, working with in the, as part of this project, they don't have a very comprehensive integration strategy, integration for, for returning foreign fighters. Um, all these countries have the, um, uh, the prison sentence. As soon as they're back, they're arrested. But uh, apart from that, there is no elaborated plan. What to do with them? Like, for example, Norway has a very elaborated reintegration plan for foreign fighters. But in, uh, in, in the countries that we are involved in, there is no elaborated plan. So then it's not very clear what these people end up doing after, let's say, they have finished their prison sentence. There's a lot of evidence that prisons are um, an excellent ground for further radicalization. So then, you know, this poses a question whether arresting them immediately is actually a, a good idea, uh, whether that will help with de-radicalization of 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 uh, these persons. So it's not, uh, the, in, the proper integration strategies are not there and it's still not very clear because some of them have returned recently, still not very clear what the uh, impact of these returnees into the society is. This is, I think, to be seen in the next few years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Angelica. Thank you. For this a very interesting conversation for sharing your very rich experience with us today. Um, I think that you are going to talk about these topics at the Winning Peace Conference in October the, on the 11th and 12th at the German Federal Foreign Office in Berlin. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your contribution there. Um, again, you can find information about the registration or about the conference in general on win-peace-conference.berlin. 
and we have more podcasts to come so stay tuned thank you very much thanks again